0: What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm stoked today. Why? Because it's 79 degrees in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And guess what? Two weeks ago, I got snowed in. It was like a foot and a half of snow. I had to cancel plans because there was so much snow. As a matter of fact, I like threw my shovel to the side of the driveway. One day, I just kind of forgot about it. I couldn't even find my shovel when I woke up. Two weeks ago, It's was like, The shovel's buried. I had to borrow my neighbor's shovel to shovel my driveway because I couldn't find where it was in the yard. There was that much snow. Anyways, I'm feeling good today. I'm excited. You can probably hear it in my voice. It's festival season. We're starting festival season. I'm stoked about festival season because I get to go see my friends. My friends get to see my band play. We get to hang out. We get to go to catering and have dinner or lunch together or whatever. Just last week, I was playing this festival in Savannah, Georgia. It was wonderful. Nate Smith and his band were there, hanging out, having a good time. Galactic was there, hanging out, having a good time. I'm ready for this festival season to kick off. Speaking of festivals, you wanna know one of the bands that's a pioneer of the way the modern festival works? Fish. You may not have known that. I had a wonderful dinner one time with Trey, who's the lead singer and guitar player Fish, for those that don't know. And he was talking about how, you know, 20, 30 years ago, festivals just, they didn't look the way that they do now. And they kind of helped pioneer what modern festivals look like. But he did have some gripes about the way that modern festivals work. Too much happening. Not enough built-in, just chill time. That was one of the things he said. You know what? I kind of agree. Sometimes it's nice, like, yo, Let's just have 30 minutes where there's not music happening and people can kind of regroup, catch their breath, whatever. I don't know, do people lose interest halfway through the day? I wouldn't think so, but you know, could be that I'm like getting older now. No, 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 I mean, I'm not getting older. I mean, I am, technically, I'm getting older, but I don't feel old. But I do sometimes just want 30 minutes of downtime where there's no loud music pumping at a festival. Whatever, okay? Today on the show, We've got Mike Gordon from Fish. Bass player, he's a singer songwriter himself, author. He's done stuff for movies, he's done his own records, he's played on a bunch of other people's albums. He is cemented into the history of jam, I don't know what, the jam world. Oh, he says something interesting in the podcast. Uh, this is a quote, I heard him say it. I hate jam bands. Whoa, 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 bro, bro. I would say like half your fan base has a jam band, man. Controversial uh, little quote that he said there. I'm leaving it in though, it's nice, nice. But he backs it up with something that's a little teaser for what's coming in the episode. I'm very stoked to have Mike on the podcast. Great dude, and I think you're gonna enjoy it. Hey, speaking of many of you being musicians, if you are a guitar player, if you're a bass player, I have a guitar course out, the Corey Wong Guitar Course. I swear by it, it is about five and a half, six hours worth of videos, a bunch of stuff that I've crafted and curated, all the things that people ask me about, about my style of playing, about playing guitar, session work, just how to be a better technician on the instrument. If you haven't gone and taken my guitar course, go get it. You know what? It's not one of those subscription-based things. You just pay once and you have access to it forever. Take it at your own pace, do the thing. But I promise you, I promise you, if you take my course, you will be a better musician. If you go all the way through, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will objectively be a better musician. And I promise that there are concepts in there that will make you a better artist and musician yourself. Because there's a difference between being a good guitar player, playing the guitar well, and playing good art and playing musically. If you don't understand that, then you need my course. Anyways, without further ado, here we go. Mike Gordon. Hey, you guys know about Distro Kid yet? If you are an artist, musician, somebody who's trying to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, all of those things, DistroKid is a digital distributor that can get your music on all of those platforms. It's the easiest, fastest way to do so with accounts even just starting at $19.99 a year per artist. So for me, I have several albums out. I just pay one amount for the year. For all the Corey Wong albums, I just pay one amount and DistroKid takes 0% royalty hundred percent of the royalties come straight to me or you use their teams feature where you can dedicate a certain percentage to one member of your band a certain percentage to the other or one of your collaborators i do this sort of thing it works amazing distrokid is who i use for my albums and it has worked great for me the stuff gets up there fast they have a smart isrc thing i don't have to worry about coming up with my own codes registering a lot of the stuff they just have that. And they also have these really cool design tools. If you are not very design savvy, they'll help you come up with assets for social media and other things to help promote your album. And if you wanna use them, you can use my VIP code. Just go distrokid.com slash VIP slash Cory Wong, and you get 30% off. How about that? Check them out, distrokid. All right, let's hit this episode. Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Super fun. want to start. Pick bass. I love pick bass. I'm going to come oh, out of yeah. the gate saying that cats hate on pick bass. And I, it disturbs me that people have this thing against pick bass. And I, I love know. that you are, you are so just like, you've, you can do the fingers thing. You can do the other stuff. But I love that you're not afraid of it. You come correct with the pick bass. Thank
1: you. Yeah, it's a guilty pleasure. And it used to be. So taboo, um, and now it's only a few percentage more accepted out there, so I appreciate that what what is the, what is the reason for it being taboo? That's a very good question. Someone should trace that. Is it because it was associated with heavy metal or uh you know, somehow it seemed you know <laughs> I, I'm a big Esh fan, and that's only one of the reasons that I use the, the pick, but one time. I asked him why in that movie, Festival Express, where they're going across Canada and all the different artists are playing together with that lost footage. And the Grateful Dead sets are great, and he has his signature tone, but no pick. And I asked him why. And he said, well, I just use a pick because I'm lazy. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> "That's I'm not buying that, because I, I like the tone. I mean, yeah. there's more aggressive pick tones. Uh, people like... I don't know if Chris Squire and Geddy Lee and people like that are using a pick part of the time, but, you know, and some of the the heavy metal stuff. I was thinking of another example. Yeah, it's just interesting. And for me, it's not just the tone of the attack, which people would think. For me, it's some other things that I don't quite understand, but it has almost to do with the release and where it puts your palm for muting. And then the up and down motion, keeping a groove going that way. There's a there's a, a, the muting sometimes happens with the palm, or sometimes around the fingers around the pick. It's just it's an interesting uh, metaphysics there that changes everything. And there were some bands that I saw around Burlington. There was this band, Urban Blight. You know, you, I don't think you would even. It was a while back, and is. they were like okay. ska, um, and they just packed these clubs. And got everyone. They were from Ithaca, uh, or maybe they were. Anyway, no, maybe their manager was. They got the crowds just you know revved up, and everyone was moshing, and the whole thing. And but the bass player used to pick, and I was thinking, oh, it's not just for like uh, old, you know, for Grateful Dead or 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 '60s related music. It's 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 a different in this context. It works really too. It's just it, it works really well. Um, yeah, there's a certain clarity that I don't think is just the attack.
0: <laughs> yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I don't understand why not every bass player has it in their arsenal in the same way where guitar players should just, you're not going to play Blackbird on acoustic guitar with a pick. It's not going to work. You just need to be able to finger, you know, you need to be able to play with your fingers. And I feel like every bass player should be able to play with a pick. It's just a different thing in the instrument. Yeah, and
1: and you said cats. And in jazz, it's so taboo. Unless you're (laughs) Anthony Anthony Jackson or something. I'll say one more thing. It was a big honor that, I'm such a fan of O'Teal and I am a friend and friends and, and he, and I was one, I was the first bass player to do rehearsals for what became dead and company. And then I had to do other things. So they got him and a few years into it, he gave me a call and he said, how do you EQ for a pick? Like, how do you, what, what's your Mm. strategy for getting the sound right with a pick? And for him to ask me anything about bass is a big honor (laughs) because I just love his playing so much. And, Anyway, he said there's just certain songs in the repertoire that seem to really need it. And his example was Bertha, and, uh, which is bouncy, so maybe yeah. it has to do with that. And I told him some tricks that I had learned uh, in, in, the, in the war zone of playing with a pick. And I don't know that he ever, last time I, I Googled some, him playing, it was no pick.
0: Well, what's the, what, what's the tip that you learned about EQing pick bass in the war zone? Some of it's from Phil Esh. um although the guy from the doobie brothers there's that is a really aggressive
1: pick sound if you listen to uh Dan, uh taking it to the streets very edgy, so this isn't for such an edgy sound, and so that's why with Phil he takes away four k first of all because that's yeah. where the the pick that's where the really uh trebly part of the yeah, sound it gets comes. singing is and with him another thing i i mean i don't know. It's tricky having influences, huh? Because then we have to like transcend them. Um but he uh that's tricky. He plays only on this very close to the neck pickup. And yeah. a lot of bass players would sort of play in the middle, which is a sort of balanced kind of sound and even creates more of what I call the chewing gum sound because the envelope is sort of switching with every note. Um
0: yeah.
1: but the, but the and I didn't even know if playing on the front pickup for him, it was because it was because of having the pick. So I think he feels like he's giving it more bottom because it, it, it's a pick. But for me, it makes it more cutting because it's in the middle pickup that it's more balanced. And then there's some other things which have to do with filling in the mid-bass, I would say. Which really could be anywhere between 200 and 600, 600's mid-range, I guess. But uh, Because as soon as you go back to playing with your fingers... This is this thing that producers like that it's really full sounding and with a pick it it's a little bit hollow there yeah. so filling in this sort of missing part for punch I think and when all that is done it's
0: it's a it's heaven I love it <laughs> well I want to ask you about your new record yeah flying games because I I just listened down to it oh cool. And you know what? I love the mix and just the sonic quality of this record. It's really oh, interesting. It's very in your face. Right. There's lots of layers. There's lots of depth to the production. Tell me about your process of producing this album.
1: Yeah. Um. Thank you. Um. It's a. It's a. a let's call it a three tiered experience because a, a lot of this came from me and Jared working together. I've worked with Jared for 22 years on. Uh, studio, you know, engineer, he's sort of engineer, producer, and also movie stuff. And anyway, yeah, and, and building a home studio. So we have a telepathic relationship. And I've done a lot of writing with Scott Morawski, And some of the writing this time was done with just me in a room with Jared, circling back with Scott over things like lyrics and etc. So Jared and I got to go deep sonically, because we had so much time, the lockdown came, I was really nervous about we were going to, Sean Everett was going to be the producer and we were going to get in a room for two weeks with the band and then start overdubbing. But that was not sitting right. I really didn't want to do a traditional get a band in a room and record because I wanted the chance to layer things up and be really experimental with sound. Actually, the album before, on a go-go, I thought, um, I want to have at least one really bizarre, interesting sound per song. And this one, I thought, if every sound could be sort of exotic and weird in some way, That would be better. And and not at the expense of not weird for weirdness sake, but just, you know, not at the expense of the the emotion and the song and all that or or even the spaciousness in the groove. So we because the lockdown happened, we got to record for eight months every weekday, all day, with me and Jared and Flash Gordon, the cat. And it was (laughs) it was a dream come true. Yeah, it was heaven. I was home with the family working next door in the, in the, uh, somewhere on the property where we had set up a makeshift studio. And so what I did also to get, so, so this is phase, two, this is tier two of the process where I had these two four hour Zooms with Sean Everett and Scott Murrowski. Yeah. And he is so outside the box in terms of recording and mixing and everything he does, so unhinged. And gets away with it with all those Grammys sitting on his, you know, old <laughs> semi-broken whatever soundboard. Uh, well, probably classic, but broken, whatever. Really interesting ideas constantly. And you can read about it online or whatever, but uh, for other people's albums. So he, in these in these two long uh, Zoom, we got the special software that allows you to play from, from Pro Tools. Yeah, or Logic. The demos were done on Logic originally, and 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 stream and full quality audio to the which person. Is audio listening. movers. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Great. It software. was a
1: game game changer. And we, the first Zoom was four hours. The second yeah. Zoom was four hours and twenty minutes. So maybe this is like a, a, a THC kind of album. I don't know. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it would inspire the use of all kinds of other drugs, unless you're sober, which is great too. Anyway, but at the time, he went through and listened to each song and gave his crazy prompts. So uh, I like to give this one example. There's so many examples, and we had a bunch of outtakes. I've been accused of using too much material that by my friends that I've written, and there's so many out songs that didn't make on the it on the album that I don't know why I keep getting accused of that, but because um, they didn't fit like the the ones we selected. But anyway, so that song which is called it's called Undone, and I, I love the weirdness of uh, I don't know why it's called that because that's not even a lyric in the song. It should be called Unspun or obsession is fun, but um, the song Undone, he said, okay, I want you to listen to, uh, go on YouTube and listen to maybe 25 different Hawaiian guitar albums recorded in the 1950s and sample either one note or one chord swell or whatever from each one and put it on, uh, sample it to a different key of your keyboard and just play along with the song. And this song is not the Tropical song, which I guess Tropical Rocket almost could be but this is just you know a sort of slinky little funky thing and so it has nothing to do with Hawaiian guitar but there we were there i was with Jared helping playing 25 different 1950s guitar Hawaiian guitar albums along with that song and he said Sean said you're not going to get too much but you'll get these little bits that are really cool and he was right it was the weirdest experience ever uh, just, you know, from Hawaii. So forging forward these eight months, we had, every, for every song, we had some weird prompts like that from Sean. Yeah. So, and, and Jared and I have gotten very creative over the 22 years. So we already, we were mixing as we go, went along. And after sure. the eight months, we thought, it, how is someone going to mix this and, and make it sound great? And so that's the third tier, which is mixing with Sean. So yeah, that was even more insane because he had his crazy ideas like let's take it out of the digital realm and you know and record it into an old broken cassette deck from fifty years ago and bring it back in a digital and fuck around with it or uh, you know all all of his random ideas and also he, well he had the, he had the mentality of slowing down a two week mix took eight months eight to nine months so that's slowing down. But, you know, um, so one the first day might have just been, you know, let's get a cool sound for the, the floor tom. And that's the, we were going to mix this up in two weeks. The other thing about Sean is he really likes to use a lot of distortion and a lot of compression, but, but unique compression and distortion. And one time we yeah. had an argument about this, and Jared and I were sort of a little worried that it was getting so squashed and so fuzzy, and, and I said, you know... You have distortion on every little sound on every, <laughs> uh, uh, on every track. And that's maybe an exaggeration, but a lot. And he's, and, and I said, I just don't like distortion in general. Um, I read that about Jeff Beck recently. He was like, oh, if you can play a clean guitar sound, then that's, no one's doing that. And Sean's was like, I love distortion. It's my favorite thing in, in, in the world. And we're sitting there and like, how are we going to reconcile this? And he said, but it's not <laughs> the kind of distortion that people would notice. It, because it's not distortion that's gotten in the typical cliche ways. It's 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 yeah. interesting t- textures and th- that might not be perceivable as distortion. And so what we did is we kept fi- trying to find the common ground between his sensibility and Jared. So aligned with mine that honestly it was sometimes it was Jared in the studio that said, "Well, this is the most incredible thing, but if you could do this a little, if you could back up, back off this distortion a little bit." Then it might be perfect. And Jared was speaking up for me without me even knowing that I needed to speak up for myself. That's how telepathic we are. And sure. we found the compromise. And I don't know. I think, I think music is and life. are... I think music is balancing acts. And I learned that more and more. And there's several going on with the experience of making this album. And that was one. You know, balancing this these two very opposed sensibilities. I just like you know clean. I like clean, and <laughs> he likes sturdy, yeah, and we we, we, we kind of we, we made it work, and then by the time we got to Bob Ludwig to master, it was we were dialing in the final bits of this compromise. Um, it's really interesting too. I'll just say one thing I don't want to go on too many tangents with, but Sean did a mix just temporarily through this master what's called a master bus compressor, where everything is really pegged, really squashed. Yep. And Jared uh, – and, and I realized later that wasn't intended for mastering. That was just for fun for now. And later sure. there's a quiet mix made for – but in the meantime, Jared sent me this link or, I, or no, maybe someone else did of this famous mastering – one of the most legendary mastering people where for 17 minutes on YouTube explains what has happened to music where if you listen 50, 60 years ago and things weren't so squashed compared yeah. to now with – Every different – between Spotify and you know Apple Music and all of them have uh, different uh, – uh, there, there's like a dynamic range that you have to work within. Yeah. And yep. so he was playing music from then and from now, some of the same music as if handled then and now, and isolating the distortion that you would hear. And it's it's shocking. And there was a, there was a conversation with Bob Weir a, a year or two ago where he was saying – that he doesn't think this is why he thinks people aren't open, have their ears open to more different eclectic kinds of music these days is because music is so unlistenable in the way that it's been handled. And that now, of course Mm. in the digital world that people will do high def, high resolution versions, but that was interesting. I wanted to play that for my daughter because she listens to so much modern music and uh, you don't always realize what you're, what you're taking in as these kinds of distortion, but it's just one of those balancing acts.
0: Yeah. You talked about your your process with Jared and with Sean and that sort of thing. How is that process different making your records? Like I'm I also I'm friends with Vance Powell and I was oh, hanging with yeah. Vance in uh in Santa Cruz. Maybe he was he was talking about he was just about to go into the studio with you guys and he's talking about, "Yeah, I'm shipping all these pallets of my gear up to Vermont or something." Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know, that process you guys record all in one room and you've done your own albums yeah. all in one room or you and Leo together. Yeah. I'm curious, what do you for you what do you get out of the album making process as an artist? Like what do you personally get that's different when you make an album in the room together like this one that you made with Vance? What was it uh Sigma Oasis? Is that the yeah. record he produced? Yeah. Compared to like to to like Flying Games this this new one of yours. Right. I love it all. I really like album making processes
1: because, well, that's a very broad statement. I like being in there uh, because it's a chance to be creative in a way that's, you know, often it'll take a couple years at least to write songs and edit them to the point where it feels, where they feel ready. And then to have that sort of set and maybe the songs will still evolve in the studio. But, and to be able to just hunker down, sometimes it's 12 hours a day, you know, um, Back in the day with fish, it was always like 5 p.m. till 5 a.m. And it, it's just such a – it's the best ever because, well, maybe it's not the best ever compared to being on stage and being in the middle of the a peak experience religious jam, you know, religious experience peak jam. Um, but that's another one. But to have this sort of experience like that, but, but creative palette to paint on sonically, it's just – it always feels like the funnest summer camp ever. And so it can work different ways for me. Abandon a room can be a little bit like pulling your hair out because what happens if you've gotten a 40 takes and you realize, well, the first take was really the good one, but it was missing these things and and there's just so much pressure. But I like pressure. I work well under pressure. So that it's not a bad thing. But compared to, I mean, a lot of people make albums in this way, if you think about like Tame Impala or some of the Stevie wonder songs like superstition where he played almost all the instruments. And there's something about a person. Well, you know, I I was a film sort of a film major when I designed my own major and there, and my mentor and advisor was in the art department. And he was like, well, you know, you can learn to go to Hollywood and make a, Make a film with with hundreds of people, or you can do the artiste thing where you're one person. And that's what he was because he made his own optical yeah. prints. He didn't even send the film to the printer, and he, doctored, he So there's just different different spokes for different bikes. <laughs> I love using wrong <laughs> expressions. Um, so this idea of getting to take your time on something, getting to take my time on something. For that long, like I said, it was some of the best eight months of my whole life. Um, yeah. The lockdown made it so I could be at home with the family, which was great, and have this creative time without touring. And touring would have interrupted all that. And, and, and you get ideas that just lead to other ideas. And, and with Jared and I, there's so many ideas And for this album. That we have, but we know we're so quick and telepathic with understanding each other that we can get in there and try them quickly. So, you know, after I had played all the instruments on everything, most of the instruments on everything, I said, okay, I, I would like some contributions from my bandmates. So Scott and Robert and Johnny and Craig all submitted things. And sometimes, like Scott would often send 20, 22 tracks. For one song that needed a guitar solo for eight bars, and he said, "Well, I just played over the whole thing. And if it was on a click, if it's on a grid, that means I could use something from the intro that we weren't going to have guitar in and put them on, put it on the outro. So there was millions, of, you know, of possibilities. And and plus, I already had my own guitar in there, and there's something about that. And you know, do we keep that in? Do we erase it? And uh, often we had both. It was amazing how quickly it went, just because of how many years Jared and I have." I'm into long-term relationships. Um, you know, we just like, well, oh, this part's good. That that part's not good. Mark that part. Okay, we'll get it down to a few choices, and then, oh my God, this. Then it sounds like Scott is in a room in a club, sweating, and it's you know sure. late at night, and and he's just ripping out this guitar solo. And but it's not. It was pieced together, you know, meticulously.
0: I mean, if there's anything you know about me, I'm a rhythm section junkie. You know.
1: I, I love it. I was, I've was i been listening to your stuff, by the way, over the last day or so and just really getting into it. So I'm a fan
0: too. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. As a rhythm section junkie, you kind of learn to communicate in ways that just don't seem to make sense to a lot of other people with your rhythm section. Like, you know where you're going to drop something. You Or like, I don't know why I feel like I'm going to drop right. the one, but we're going to drop the one, and then we're in on two. Or it's like, right. you, you start to... F- You go into a time field together. It's like, oh, let's lean this one forward. Oh, let's lay this back, but only on this part. I'm curious how you approach playing with different drummers, especially there's so many drummers that you... Not so many. There's a few drummers that you've played with for a lot of years. How do you connect with those drummers differently? And what is it about the connection you have with them?
1: Yeah, I love drummers this is my podcast for um broad statements (laughs) overly general statements (laughs) um like even in college when i went to see these bands like urban blade or whatever whatever the all the bands that came through and a lot of came through burlington i i always just watched the drummer and maybe it's because it's what i understand the least since it's one instrument that i really can't, can't get a good groove going on uh, and I've gotten to play with some other heroes of mine, like Russell Batiste or uh, yeah, Bill Kreutzman, you know, etc. And it's always a different ex- or, or actually, and, and when Page hired me to play on his album, and the drummer was Keltner, and yeah. that was a really interesting experience that other people have described too. Where it, it, this will be the pre- <laughs> this will be the precursor to my real answer, where in while the track is going down. It doesn't feel good. It feels awkward. I like he's being a little crazy and loopy and, and, and I can't really connect or, or just inherently it, it doesn't feel like we're connecting. And it's so important for the bass and drums to, to feel like we're connecting. And then as soon as we go back to the soundboard and hear it back, it feels like the most connected, slinky, mm. lilting groove ever. And I actually, Chris Thiele had played with Keltner as well. And he said the same exact thing, really uncomfortable feeling going down, really perfect feeling coming back. So this is a very what uh, el- elusive sort of um, experience, you know, becoming a bass player. So it's so strange. And I've had these experiences where it just felt the opposite. It felt like the best pocket playing with Jay Lane one time one of, one of um, like like Bobby Bob Weirs band, that was incredible feeling. It's like everything every little hit on that drum set feels like it elevates me, and I don't know why. why does this mm. feel so good and and yeah i didn't I don't think I heard that back afterwards and and you know, I don't know if that translated, but to, the question about these drummers, you know i had this I've had this hotline for twenty years now, it's the 20th anniversary of fans calling this hotline, which was originally started in o three because I was releasing my first solo album inside in. So I guess it's the yeah. 20th anniversary of having solo albums too. Um the guy from Rope Dope Records, Andy Herbert said, "Why don't you have a hotline?" And I've been and it was dormant for a couple of years and now I've fired it back up with the album coming out and everything. Someone recently said, "You uh, you have such a great drummer. I don't think people realize how great John is." And I was like, "Oh, cool, but which John?" <laughs> because I have a band I have two bands, Yeah.
0: You're right. <laughs> I have two
1: bands with with drummer John and two I have and two bands with bass player named Mike. Anyway, so <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Fishman, I do think that Fish is, he could be oh, the unsung hero of the rock and roll world. And I know he's sung in some departments, but <laughs> I don't know. He practices six, eight hours a day, whether even on tour. He, we've played it like Meriwether, and he stayed at the venue longer after the gig to go into the room and practice for a couple hours. And it's not that music is all about practicing, but it's combined with his personality, which is so flowing and easygoing, it's talking with him is the same and you're not going to get away. You're going to be, whether you're talking about uh, the history of Abraham Lincoln, you know, or something about drumming or whatever, you're there for a long time. He's so (laughs) gentle and and, and flowing and and yet thoughtful of a a soul. And when he gets on his ride cymbal, it's like flying through the air and this flow is incredible. And, Originally, with fish, because we've had forty years now, <laughs> uh, with fish, we never played in four four, and we mm-hmm. never he never put the snare on two and four. He never played a regular he, if his if he didn't have some juxtaposition of eleven against thirteen between at least two of his limbs, then he wasn't interested. Or if he was, he had a rule that if he ever had played this drum beat in another song, he wasn't interested. And that was the main thing. And plus he he mainly concentrated on Trey. And Trey's rhythm strumming in our first five or ten years, maybe, you know, five years, whatever, five 10 or ten years, was what drove the band. I don't think my pocket was as deep and, and Fish and I weren't as connected. And he was listening to you know to Fishmore. And then at the late nineties, somehow everything changed. And on the tour bus, we were listening to this, you know, a lot of like there's this James Brown thing from 1964, black and white television thing, and things like that where it's not about changing chords and making up new crazy yeah. riffs and time signatures at every bar, you know, it's about getting onto a chord and a pocket and, you know, stuff that now we all understand it as musicians, but we weren't, we, didn't, you know, we had to play. What we did is for about five years of sound checks, all we did is play a blue, a 12 bar blues in four four because we had never done it before in our first 10 years. Mm. And so then the meat and potatoes stuff came and the and, and the pock and that's when I got super happy. At the end of the 90s, Trey was not even playing guitar on some jams. He was playing his percussion rig, just to make sure that the bass and he he just made this commitment that the bass and drums were gonna be a unit that we were gonna ride on top of. And so and it was partly because we were owning it more and connected more, and it was partly because he was as a great leader making that happen and then from from then on out it was the fans sometimes like the early 90s stuff because it's so angular and ever changing but and i like hearing it but what happened to the pocket after that felt so great now sometimes on a knife that i don't like as much the first thing i'll notice it's it's not just one person or fishman or 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 me or whatever but but what happens is people are a little bit on edge, and they are maybe maybe a little self conscious, and pe- or whatever, or excited, and people get into overplaying, and the yeah the that deep pocket goes away, where where then all the interesting eleven against thirteen, whatever things are happening, don't mean as much to me because there isn't a bed to ride on. And and fortunately, that it's 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 not too often. I love Fish Tours. I'm, I have I'm having so much fun with that band with Johnny. It, he, he I I had looked at a hundred different drummers. Um, online. And I I think I only auditioned two when we were looking for a new drummer 2014. Um, And the other one was Adam Deitch, who's also great. Actually, before I even played with Johnny, it was Joe Russo who said, you know, I hear what you're looking for in a drummer. He was was backstage at a fish show in Randall Island. He was saying, I get it. You want that sort of swinging, lilting thing. And, deep pocket and, you know, and for it to be a little bit different than the, the fish experience, regardless of how you, the, the pH fish experience. And you should consider John Kimmock cause, and he was 25, 24 at the time. And he, because he's got all that, that you're describing, just do me a favor and give it a, give it an opportunity. And, you know, even though his dad, Steve Kimock had played with all the grateful dead people, and could sort of do the Jerry Garcia sounding thing although he pushes all kinds of different directions too um he said you know it's Johnny isn't he's really into like this weird interesting indie music and avant-garde and whatever and he's forward thinking and he'll bring some some of that young forward thinking energy and it was it was just great because he he had that sort of floaty thing that I love the most but, and he brought all kinds of influences to my consciousness and our consciousness and and he was just really willing to become a team player and so that's been about it that's been a dream come true as well um and i I get this situation. i mean there are other drummers that I love to play with um my my favorite <laughs> some of my favorite concerts ever were buddy rich where I was just my yeah. face was blown off. And I'm not going to get to play with him. And he fired 30 bass players in one month one time. So I don't know that I would want to. Um, but I'm such a drum fan. I I love Nikki Glassby a lot. I feel like she's always was incredible and gets better yeah. all the time each year. And it's a little scary. And there's a bunch of other drummers too. I'm I'm just a I'm a fan. But um, but to get to play with Johnny is is just such a great experience. He's a team player with a capital T he's he's like his spirit is there and his groove is there and he's you know he's just a little guy but he owns it like he this little this i mean i'm a little guy too um but he'll take the ball and run with it he'll just if if anyone's wondering who's going to count off the song there it comes from the drumsticks yeah. and it's just perfect and it's oh this is not some little guy this is a massive incredible
0: drummer yeah all right i have a question that I feel like I've been able to find some sense of an answer for for myself. Yeah. But I'm curious on yours, because you are so much a part of and a checkpoint in the jam lineage and will Mm. forever be. Uh But the, the, the jam world is so great. It's such a great community. The music is great. There's one thing that seems to be interesting, though, and elusive to a lot of people, is that sometimes the jam thing, and I don't mean as a whole, but like people jamming or bands playing things where they go into a jam, Right, it can often feel cosmic in just, like you said, peak, just like a peak experience. And sometimes it can just feel like a handful of people on stage Mm -hmm. noodling around and it feels like wow, it's really only been 30 seconds? It feels like it's been 30 minutes. Like, this feels like it's forever. When is it going to end? And I'm curious, because you've been a part of this, you've probably experienced both sides of it on the listening and playing side. Right. What do you think it is that makes a difference between sounding like some people on stage noodling around and a peak jam?
1: Yeah, that's a... That's about as deep as the questions can get. <laughs> um, <laughs> y- yeah. Um, I, I've been been—I've definitely been studying this for um, ever, um, ever since, especially that, the, the peak experience I had in 1985, I used to talk about a lot at Goddard College, where yeah. that changed my life. And one thing about that, let me say a couple things about that without going too deep into it, because it applies to later as well. It was a release before the before it began because I was an electrical engineering student and I had all these midterm tests before Thanksgiving break. And then after that, it was all over. So and that was difficult. I was not doing well in engineering. So it was electromagnetic field theory and semiconductor, you know, physics. Anyway, and then it was all over. And then it was the first snowfall, and I was driving down to Plainfield Field to play this gig. So there was a huge release. So what I'm recommending for musicians everywhere is to sign up for some major that's really hard and that you never had any interest in in the first place, and <laughs> drive yourself insane, and then go do a gig. It'll be great, I promise. Um, well, so anyway, and the other another thing about that gig that I, I talked about is I've talked about is that all the gigs leading up to that point in the first for me in the first two years of Fish were either super tight or super loose. And the tight mm. ones, we've got all the beginnings and endings and the changes. And the loose ones were these flights of experience through jamming where we would kind of screw up the endings. And even from the first notes of what I guess was a sound check, there were only two people watching us by the second set. Anyway, um, it was both. I just knew it was both. There was integration of these sides. So I, I talk about balancing acts a lot, and, and the balance was there. It was almost like in the stars. But, you know, that kind of release thing of all the engineering tests was one thing. So then fast forward another 10 years in the 90s. I'm going to Dead Shows. Well, I had already been going to Dead Shows, but I was hanging out um, at the Lightboard with Candice. And I said, you know, I have this list, which is the recipe for a good gig. And she said, oh, I'm very interested in that. And I showed it to her. There are about eight things. I can't remember all the eight things, but I can sort of. And she said can I take this? I'm going to give it to the band. I was like, really? Sure. Um, But it was kind of like, well, it's tricky because sometimes being well rested is important. And sometimes that's made for the best experience. But some of my best fish shows and some of those peak experiences have been on zero hours of sleep or one hour of sleep. So it's not, that's not a formula, but it seems to play into it. Um, Having like a connection during the day, like lunch with an old friend or something, Mm. infuses something. I feel like these things are getting fu- infused into the soul even before the music and the concert. It could sometimes be the opposite. Like you have a big argument with your worst enemy and then, again, it's a, it's a release. But uh, but something is, an, is heightened in a sense of connecting, um, going into it. And then, mm. for me, the acoustics are so... As a bass player, you know... If every kick drum hit is going to last two and a half seconds, then it's going to be a bad gig, I promise. Although even, yeah. even what's supposed to be a bad gig with terrible acoustics have been good gigs and have even <laughs> been good sounding gigs. So it's never, you know, it can be counterintuitive, but acoustics are so important because it, it, what we do as improvisers is listen. We really have to be able to hear. So these are all the factors. The last thing I wrote on the, on the chart that I gave, the, the list that I gave Candace was you have to like your shirt. Now that's tricky because if you overdress, if you and not overdress, but if you think too hard or are too aware of your own shirt, like maybe yeah. it's a super cool, snazzy, funky looking shirt, it might take your attention away from the music. But on the other hand, if it's the same t shirt that you wear every day and it's not a ritual of getting on stage, that you know, in some way or at least extra comfortable, extra something. Then it's not contributing the sh- the shirt factor, um, but somehow I've yeah. been on stage like a Dix where we play every Labor Day. We're, this year is going to be like our twelfth or something. And the breeze is so nice at the end of the year. Uh, I mean, you know, the end of the summer, and, and when everyone's getting together for Labor Day, and there's this breeze, and the acoustics there are so perfect because it's there's no roof. That means no resonance for bass or kick drum that lasts for well, you know, for two seconds. Um, but there are the bleachers, which reflect back some so it's not completely dead. Yeah. It's perfect acoustics, perfect weather. Sometimes the altitude's a little bit I don't know, maybe that's part of feeling loopy on the five thousand feet of altitude. But um maybe the fact that it's a ritual, that we have these rituals, I think that's important mm-hmm. too. Playing with the same band, sometimes even in the same kind of venues, doing sound check at the same time every day seems like it would make it more boring. Like as opposed to finding some incredible musicians and playing in a cave, which is the opposite, you know, a new place, new yeah. people. But there's something about getting used to something and the ritual. That also these are all factors when it's happening. I can access. I I, I access my night dreams, either recent or continue. Oh, what's the word? Um, Reoccurring dreams. Yeah. I'm in touch with when I'm in the middle of one of those jams where I forget to swallow, and I'm, I'm so in the zone. I, I see these scenes from night dreams um, because I, because all the levels of consciousness are brought forward Mm. and are integrating. So now what I've done is I've used a lot of words, not to answer your question, I think, but to dance around it. Um, I, so I guess, I guess the thing is, is that I don't think it can be easily predicted, but yeah, I do think that you can, we can set our lives in a certain direction for, uh, I mean, part of it is acceptance. That's a huge thing. If the gro- if the if a jam is starting, let's say it's a reggae groove, and it doesn't sound like the right groove, and, and I just spend the whole time fighting against that and thinking, oh, "Shit, why isn't this ever like?" And then it's not going to be good. But as soon as I think, yeah. "Oh, this isn't what I normally feel here, or or even like here," but actually, I'm going to accept this. Acceptance mm. goes is huge. And so maybe that's what some of these other life experiences during the day or during, leading up to the, that night as jam band person, <laughs> uh, maybe that leads to acceptance. Um, I've, I've gone through the... I have this... Um, I'll say one more thing. So I, I've kept this... After my 1985 Goddard experience, I, I started journals just dedicating to figure out, dedicated to figure out why it had happened and how to make it happen more for many yeah. journals, years. And then I started this list on the side uh, called Bass Playing Thoughts. It was 1992 that I started the list. And I still add to it. And at one point, I, I, I gave this sort of s- little lecture, whatever you call it, at Berkeley School of Music. And I had to go through this whole list and read it. And, and whenever I have these deep realizations about what it takes to make it work, I add to the list. Sometimes if I have a fish experience that feels like one of those religious experiences and the groove is floating and all this stuff I email my other band the band members from my other band and I, and I say oh I figured out how music works this is it or at least for this one passing moment <laughs> um, it's in one point, for one month it was all about it's swing it's all about swing it doesn't even have to be a swung groove it can, have to be, a per, it can be a perfectly straight groove but it don't mean a thing without that um, and that's what it's all about or you know but acceptance was big the swing thing was big um when it's when it's working it's um it's it's the it's floating in the air and it's not wanting to be anywhere else in the world it's not wanting to be backstage at catering or at home in my cozy living room it's that stage and room with all the people is the living room there's no you know it's being completely in the moment being self actualized i just want to say one more thing since you you got me waxing poetic here. Um, and and maybe you've had, I wonder if you've had experiences like this as such a funky guitar player. Um, this whole, this last few years, I've had this this topic of varying versus non-varying on my mind. Yeah. And bringing it back to the album, Flying Games, um, I wanted the bass to vary a little more. because, But I wanted the grooves to be a little more steady. Uh, I wanted the, in fact, my original goal was a lot of songs on one chord and not much, Brian Eno once said that he doesn't like changes at all unless they're really justified. Um, just like, otherwise they don't change. And I wanted that, just flow. I did not want to make like albums with 20-minute jams like some of my friends. That wasn't the idea either, but I wanted to just... And, as soon as i started making the album it had lots of changes and everything i usually do with verses and choruses and bridges just came right back into play cuz i am who i am and i feel like i achieved it anyway though but even though the because the grooves are flowing and and the songs for me sound like they even though there's there's a bit of eclectic there that, that they flow from one to the next as as a whole and maybe that's why some yeah. of the extra songs didn't make it but i didn't want the bass to just stay the same i wanted the bass to be able to let loose and i feel like i feel like i achieved that too because i feel like you know, I made the I made the, the movie Rising Low with twenty five of my bass heroes, including yeah. John John Entwistle. and even John Entwistle gets in there and says, "Oh, I'm just here to serve the song," you know, and maybe plays a root note every bar, and that's about it. And I was like, "No, you're fucking John Entwistle. Just let us hear you <laughs> being crazy." And, and not only that, I mean, when I think about like Jimmy Herring used to be one of my favorite guitar players, and he would just play so many notes, and but it was so unhinged and beautiful and soaring. And when he started playing with, I don't know if it was as the dead, I guess, or further, it was the dead. He really was using a lot of restraint. And I was thinking, I can't wait till he mixes those two things together because the restraint alone, I've told people, can you check your, uh, in the band or even like the lighting director for my band, I've said before, uh, can you check your tastefulness at the door? We we need, we need to just like, like be be bad, be wrong, strong and wrong. We used to say with fish. Um, so uh, the point that I'm making is so I, I, I allowed for varying in the bass, um, but I, I also like to tell the story. Um, this is just important to me, and I, I don't know if I've talked about it before. But so this thing about non-varying versus varying. So when I was in those that week of rehearsals for Dead and What Became Dead and Company, standing next to John Mayer, and and we were all playing a lot, a lot of notes, and four days in, Bobby said, "Can we do an experiment?" He said. Let's just stay on one chord. We can play the song, but not with singing, and not with any embellishing, and not with any chord changes. In fact, nothing's going to change. Just get on the chord and play that pattern for 20 or 30 minutes, which is basically forever. And the, for yeah. musicians who are used to doing, getting into this you know, noodling business, which can sometimes be cool and sometimes can be the death of... I mean, I hate jam bands. Jam band is a terrible world. Word, because so much of the time it is that noodling. There's no connection. It doesn't feel like there's connection and power. And but to have that and then transcend it in ways that people who would never think to listen to a jam band would uh, would guess would happen is even more beautiful than than knowing how to do it in the first place. Like a band that doesn't play in four or four for ten years and then starts. It's even more rewarding. But Bobby <laughs> had us playing whatever song I don't know several songs all day, half an hour each without varying. And it sounded more like a peak religious experience from when I used to see the dead with Jerry Garcia still alive, all of that. It was more of a peak experience with the air around me crystallizing in this groove mm. than any of the stuff where we were playing a million notes. And that was that was life-changing. And with my band, we started doing this thing at almost every sound check called the non-varying exercise. And I even brought it to Fish at one point. But what it is, is we, we, we pick a groove... Uh, we pick a pattern and we sort of it's fish used to do these listening exercises, so it's related to that, but it's not the same. It, because all we do is once we pick it, we don't change for 10 minutes. And it's it's amazing. It's a peak experience. It's somehow, even though we're picking that pattern in one second time, it becomes a new song that should be written as a song because it's so fresh and so unique and so great every time. And on top, you know, I, which is why I want to go to the studio and just do this. Um, yeah. And on top of it, it becomes a meditation. I did 25 years of mindfulness meditation, and now I've done eight years of um, TM. Anyway, but it becomes a meditation where now Craig is playing the Kunga and every Kunga hit is a little different because, mm-hmm. you know, impermanence. Whatever you think is the same, it really isn't. But that's why reeling it in is so important, because otherwise our minds are going to, oh, there's a bass player here. I think uh, I'll throw in something Phrygian. I bet he doesn't see that one coming, but it's kind of like, <laughs> fuck that if Phrygian, if thinking that way takes us not from floating in the air over the stage and the audience, which is what I want. I want it to be an experience, I don't. Want, yeah, and not, and, you know, I, I don't want it to be art. I want it to be a, a religious experience and if it can be art on the side then great. I love things that are artistic, but more importantly for me it's 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 a it's a me- it is a means to an end. That's what makes it not art in the, in, in with a mm. capital A. It's I want music to make you, you know, cry and to be emotional and a soul, you know, body, mind, soul and heart all four. Uh, so for me, it, it's sort of a function. And by doing this non-varying thing, you get to see what's already there. You get to see where the muse is, you know, taking over and playing as with the Ouija board or as with meditation. And um, and it, so that has been really interesting. And then going into making flying games, it was a question. How much is going to vary? How much is going to not vary? You know, like like if you're, okay, so you, you're you an incredible, f- f- among other things, but funk, like you were saying, rhythm, Um, guitar player, if you've been doing the same thing for seven minutes, what parts of your brain say, this still feels good? And what parts
0: of your brain say, I could do something cool here? (laughs) You know, it's tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I think back to one of the other things that you said of acceptance is sometimes you you choose to to play a part in a groove, and then maybe eight bars in, you're like, dang it, I should be on the uh of four, not the and of four. But right. I've already committed to it, so it's like, right here I am, and then, then you you kind of have to negotiate with your own yeah. mind, arguing like, just change it, just go to the uh of four. Like, no, 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 we decided this early on. Like, let's just live with it. Yeah, we'll we'll live with the rub. Maybe, right. Maybe it would be better because the hi hats on the uh of four, right. and It would feel more cohesive, like an arranged, orchestrated thing. But this is just what it is. Accept or I it might right think now. to
1: change it. I, it's that's it, yeah, you hit the. That's right at the crux of the issue here because either way it yeah. can work. And when I used to get glares back in the day, glares don't happen anymore, for the bass being a little screwy in the middle of a fish jam, they were always because of one of two <laughs> things. One is because he's in his own world. He's going all over the place. There's no bed of rhythm from the bass and drums that everything else can mm-hmm. ride on top of. And the other is the thing I would get a glare for is the opposite. He's so committed to this a non-varying pattern that he's not listening. He's not very ebbing and flowing with the rest of us. And you can and yeah. so that's a it's another balancing act. I was going you made me think of something else. Oh, so there are some fish songs that I've played for decades all the same way. And they're always uncomfortable in this in these spots. Like like you're saying, maybe I, I'm always put this note on the end of three where it could be on the uh of three and feel better. Um and after a couple decades, I've actually said, why not make it feel good and change it? And then I change it, and then I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, why didn't I try this 20 years ago? It's so much better. Um, <laughs> with my band, it's the opposite. We sort of reinvent things, even the same old songs. We sing, nah, this never felt good. Can we change the groove over the chorus? And we've done a lot of that, and it's really been helpful to allow ourselves yeah. to. So that's not always accepting. I guess it's... Um, challenging, too. I don't know. Uh, Yeah.
0: Very interesting quandaries we have in in our little lives. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want to take it away from music for a second and go more towards community, because I had an interesting conversation with Trey about this, because you guys are kind of like pioneers of the modern festival in the way that it is. And then it it has, in a lot of ways, uh, the way that Trey described it, was kind of devolved into something that's maybe sometimes a little bit overwhelming where there's like no time, there's like no Mm downtime. But one of the things when he was talking about this and I've heard you talk about things and just your entire scene in general, there's a huge difference between a community and an audience. Mm. And there's a big difference between cultivating a a fandom and like a, a, a feeling of like a sense of belonging Compared to just like an audience. And I'm seeing you do it with with your records. I see you as a part of all the projects you're involved in. Right. It's got an entire thing to it. Can you speak to if there's intentionality behind that in your end or if there's insight into why that happens or, you know, like where where is the connection and where is the intentionality from your end on that?
1: Yeah, it's tr- it relates to some of the, I I just saw how this metaphysical brain crunch where I realized it relates to some of the same problems from a different angle of these, like a different kind of balancing act between the the Dionysian and the Apollonian experience where one of them is all surrendering and and, and ecstasy among the group. And and the other is like an opera where it's contrived very uh, Mm. carefully. And, and I'm not trying to bring it back to the music, but it, but there is an analogy here. It's just, yeah. And and the, when I 40 years ago almost I answered a sign, bass player needed, which Trey had put up, and it said um, wanting to play music and in, influenced by the Grateful Dead and Frank Zappa. Which I almost see as not that Frank Zappa didn't let loose and jam, but his compositions were so advanced. Yeah. And some of the best of what the Grateful Dead did was let loose and jam and. You know, not done to, to make it all black and white, but there seemed to right from the beginning there there was that. So now I was I had this perfect link in my brain between that and the community aspect. Um, well, let me see if it if it if if, if it manifests itself. <laughs> um, where are you going with this, Mike? There are plenty of musicians who have done a great job of that contrived thing, as putting it on a pedestal, where you know even with. David Bowie taking on a whole different character and costume mm-hmm. and, and attitude for an album, and then changing it, you know, after that. Or I read a, a, the book of, by Shep about Shep Gordon um, being the manager for Alice Cooper. There's also the movie Supermensch, but and and I yeah. the book is great, and how you know it was. It was a manager who had never managed before, and a singer who had never sung before, putting this thing together and doing so great because of the creativity and in, in making things contrived and, and imagining how people are going to think. And Trey's done that. Trey has a good sensibility for if you we're planning out a New Year's Eve thing or whatever. Like, oh, when we get to this part, if we do this, the energy will be great, and and, and the and the and the and the move will be unexpected, and people just thinking from people's experience what it will be. But, you know, it's hard mm. to predict the future. So that's a little more of the contrived attitude, knowing that we're going to surrender to the flow along along the way. So with my, so yeah. with my band, um, I like the idea of planning things. And I like the idea of taking on different personalities in, in subtle ways anyway, with with different tours and different, you know, Uh, for a while we were wearing all black and and the set was all black and we hid all the amps because unlike jam bands, we wanted that to be hidden so we could see these weird mesmerizing patterns. Um, And I thought that's not expected in my world, so I'll do that. And uh, (laughs) I don't get up there thinking that I'm performing. I I, I, I get up there thinking that I am such a fan of other bands, of of experiences that I've had, that I'm just one of everybody. And how can I get up there and and facilitate this for the room? As I I like being a band leader, um, but I'm the kind of band leader you know. So I was I was saying um, before we started that Rachel Eckroth is going to be on this tour because Robert Walter is still out with uh, Roger Waters. So and Rachel is incredible. Yeah. And the first thing I said to her is, "What's some songs of yours that we can do?" And not every person who has their name on the on the marquee would would say that as one of the first things, but it's important to me yeah. um, because I, and not only songs, but ideas like in, in, saying to her, well, you're an outsider and that's incredible because you have great musical sensibilities and we want you to comment on, you know, what could make this song or this, this sort of arrangement for the live version of it to be even better as an outsider. Yeah. And that's so valuable for, you know, I, I really like a group sort of experience. Um, and, and as a result, you know, I just sort of look at the people in the crowd and think, we're in this together. You know, I, I might have my name on the marquee, and and I've pr- I'm proud of this album that I've made and these songs that I've written, and I do want to share that. There's probably some ego involved in that, but it doesn't compare to this feeling of, I've had these religious experiences, mm-hmm. or special at least experiences, and what can we do tonight to make it that we're all having them? You know, whether it's... yeah figuring out the set list and, oh, people, we're losing people, you know. And in, in the jam band world, it's not as much as putting something over on people and, you know, being sex objects or whatever it is. It's it's more, okay, we're all in this together. What? How can we have this experience? And, you know, that's why The Grateful Dead started a lot of that by having mailing lists and, like, sign up and we'll be in touch with you and people coming on, you know and even varying the set list every night. So people would come on tour and become a community that way, expecting every night to be a different experience because every day of our lives is a different experience. And so it's funny to think about bands that really are putting on a performance and they do a great job of it. Um, And and I admire that um, where every set is, you know, every night is the same set and it's very calculated with the wardrobe and the props and, so I admire that, but just in my experiences, I want the wake. I want my musical experiences. I want my waking life to be uh, attached and connected to my dream world, like I was saying. And that's so mm. powerful of an experience that all the other performance-related contrived things don't quite compare to what that can bring. So I don't know. I I I I seem to be. I love your questions, and they're so
0: deep that I have to kind of dance around them to get at what I think is the answer. <laughs> that's uh, all right. Um, yeah. I love it. Well, is there anything else coming up that you want everybody else to know about? I know that you're about to go on tour with Fish. You're about to do your own tour with Rachel, like you said, who's a great friend of mine, amazing keyboard player. I'm so stoked that she's playing with you. Yeah, and not only that, but
1: I've recently learned a song that you played on. And it was a great one. I won't say which one, but
0: yeah. I know which one. I won't tease it either, but I'll I'll let people look it up for themselves because that's actually more fun. There you go. I am having fun
1: in life. I, I feel so thankful. Um mm. there are things in life which aren't always easy and I've had those in the last couple of years. But right now this idea of going on tour with fish and in our 40th year, but having these new things. Um I'm doing a neurological experiment for a gadget I've been planning on making for twenty five years. And it's going to involve a notable person, so that'll be when I'm in, in the West Coast. That's that's like a very amorphous teaser right there. Give me a few. Yeah, I know. like it'll, how, it'll, it'll what, what am I,
0: how am I supposed to respond to that? Am I just gonna let? Am I gonna let that blow by here? Do I need to acknowledge it? And then it? the next uh, day, one day <laughs> after that,
1: there's this gadget that someone, a, a musical instrument maker who does who makes weird things. He, he uh, Andy Graham is the name. Slapperoo. He made me this the bass slapperoo is this rod that has a metal slab of a uh, metal on it that you can play like a bass <laughs> you slap it like a and he's only given two of these instruments uh he, he, well the smaller slapperoo everyone has <laughs> everyone and their friggin' grandmother has a little slapperoo but the the big one that's the bass one he's only given two made two and given two away one to me and one to stevie wonder and i thought oh good i'm in good wow. company in that department and then he does these things like, I'll make one of a kind, like a didgeridoo that has harp strings on top of it. And then he puts it through all these effects pedals and he's a great percussionist. So he does performances. But should I give this one away? Okay, I'm going to give this one away because I, I don't think describing it will, uh, and I don't even know. Th- th- this, I don't know when you'll when this will come out. So there's this thing called the wobbler and it's a rod and on it is another rod that vibrates back and forth with an electromagnet. And it's you put it through some echoes and whatever and it sounds really cool. It's like... That kind of thing. And then he said, I, I finally said, I've been seeing this wobbler. I know there's only one of them. Can you make me one? He's like, sure. You know what? Maybe I'll make a big one. How big do you want it? And I was like, well, if I had it a certain height, then people could see it on stage. How about 43 inches? He's like, you got it. And he started fabricating. I got these pictures of the pickups from scratch and the bass and the rod. and the, And it's incredible. And when you put on these, he's got three rods. There's one that's super big, makes a different sound. And then the littlest one, you can actually put on end. So so one end is shorter and one is longer, and it makes a really weird sound. Um, and coming up on the West Coast there, he's going to bring it to a sound check, and I'm going to plug the thing in and put it through the whole sound system. And not that that has much to do with bass playing or songs, but I think it's the perfect, you know, I'm ready to wobble. I don't know if people are ready to wobble, but I am. So and the, my point is, is this Fish Tour, which is Eight Dates, has lots of things on it like that, which make it feel fresh you know musically during the yeah, show yeah. but also during the day and then right after that I go into rehearsals with the five of us including Rachel and Johnny and Craig and Scott for a week and work on this album you know these these this album I've pretty much been working on for 6 years so I'm I'm so proud of the fact that it's coming I just like it it's peppy and fun and um yeah. and we get to learn it all and some cover songs and some new original songs and the old songs that Rachel's never played before and get ready to go on tour. So everything, there's so many fun things going on. I'm writing a script. We don't have time to talk about that, but that's been 25 <laughs> years as well. But that's going great. <laughs> Some of these things. Uh, uh, okay, I'll just say one more thing. Uh, I, I got this really weird painting recently of a of a doll head. It's it's a little creepy, but it's just I'm here for it. And it was from an antique store. And the Old guy painting in the or is store, it a new, did you commission this painting or did It's you? a new painting. No, neither. It was because this antique store and it's called L in uh, just L in Littleton, New Hampshire. It's incredible mid-century antiques, but then he has artists from new, you know, new stuff. And he's like, half the people that come in here, love this. And, and half of the people hate it. And I was like, I think I'm on the love side. Um, so I, I got it <laughs> and I have this, and I have a beautiful mud room with, I, with all due respect to the artist. Um, it's in the, but it's, but it's old barn board and everything and it's lit up. And I said, I, I have got to get um, a sound effect. So when people come in this room, there's a sinister baby, you know, baby laugh. And yeah. there is now, as of yesterday, thanks to Gretchen, my assistant, who can do everything in the world, the most incredible person in the world. And it's both Gretchen and I, even though it's been in there for a day, we walk by and it scares us every time. Um, <laughs> and it, I said, I think that that painting and that sound are the best thing that ever happened to me. And I just love mixing different mediums, different kinds of experiences, different kinds of art. It's only like one moment. It's a little giggle. And it's so weird. And I have a Passover Seder tonight. My dad's coming from Boston. I'm having 19 people come. Um, And I don't know if they're going to be freaked out or enjoy it, but it's the perfect... Somehow it just symbolizes this era of creativity for me where life has just got so many possibilities. (laughs) If you... If you if you let it, if you put your mind to it, and you don't get over, uh, overwhelmed with all the all the choices, um, and that's kind of what I'm feeling. Two different bands, cut some other experiences, a podcast. I'm I'm a I'm a happy camper right now. I'm thankful.
0: The 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 other comment we could we we're just going to completely blow by yeah. as it as it as it pertains to society as a whole is just the the overwhelming amount of options <laughs> and uh, well
1: <laughs> I love this book Four Thousand Weeks um, my therapist had recommended <laughs> my therapist was on the first further bus not to keep making Gr- grateful dead references because he taught poetry at wow. um, Stanford he Ken Kesey was the other guy teaching poetry there until Noam Chomsky. Hand plucked him out of Stanford to go teach poetry and other courses with gnome and, and mit. this is like are you a really serious Coop super plus get this his name is michael miller uh, he was He's a jazz pianist and he's played with Scott LaFaro. like how cool wow. kind of th- and he's he knows the people who started the Gestalt movement and he's seriously into mindfulness Buddhism. and he's like and, and yeah, he's an incredible person. <laughs> Was making, and what does oh, your therapist
0: so, say when you say, yeah, I got this creepy doll painting that makes a sinister noise when he I said walk in? How does he, he unpack said is, that with you? <laughs> instead, he says,
1: you've taken it too far, Mike. I can't work with you anymore. <laughs> no, um, I didn't break So I said, you know what? Things are going pretty well after some difficult times. Can we talk about time management? He's like, no, um, that's, that's easy stuff. But just get this book, um, 4,000 Weeks. And it's this counterintuitive approach to time management against all the other thousands of books that try to get you to do more. It's, it tries to get you to do less. And 4,000 Weeks is supposedly how long we live, give or take. And it wants you to acknowledge all the things on our to-do lists and bucket lists that we can't do and that we every day feel stress about because we think that we can do it if we just find a way to do a little more. So it was a really inspiring book. And its I'm one of those people who likes... I don't know if it's cuz of a Gemini or a firstborn or a whatever <laughs> um that I like to do a lot of different things and I can yeah. definitely spread myself thin. Um and learning not to learning to say no. I, I I people ask like what was Fish's secret to success? You know it's hard to know, but one of the components is saying no mm-hmm. along the way, mm-hmm. getting opportunities to grow really quickly. Oh, you've only played for 300 people, well you can play for 8,000 if you open up for this band and like no, here's all the reasons why that doesn't work for us. Uh, it's not the yeah. time to grow in that way. So it, it applies to life in general, where we all have this thought that we could just do more. If if I just got better at this, or if I just got something, if I just could afford this or find this person or, or, or whatever, then I'll finally be able to do this thing I wanted to do. Where I had a, a vintage Shearhorn Dobro sitting in this room right behind me, and I and an incredible Dobro player, Adam Frem. In, in Vermont was giving me lessons, and I was like, "This is a, such a beautiful instrument. I've always loved it, and it, and I do well learning new instruments. Once we have a musical mind, you know, you get. Yeah. You, you, there's a lot more you can learn when you're first learning something than once you're halfway good at it. Um, and I and I had to say, you know, it takes a lot to play the friggin' Dobro. New mm-hmm. respect for Jerry Douglas and everyone else. Where you have to mute slide. the slide on the other side of the slide after every note yeah. or it's going to sound fuzzy and you have to uh mute with your thumb on the other hand or once you pick a note and or it's going to sound fuzzy and 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 plus you know you're moving up and down you have to intonate and you have to so um i just said i love this instrument and i will play it sometimes actually that instrument is on this album because i played a little dobro on Scott's song uh haywire which used to be called acid man so there is a little dobro it was all worth it and I'll play it again but I had to say in my 4000 weeks to make a big commitment to the dobro isn't what I can do or with Leo Kaki, who's you know world class guitar player and he loved pedal steel and he loved banjo yeah. and those were two instruments that he he, del- he he got into and eventually he had to say you know what this is dangerous I love this too much yeah. this, this and I have I, every day at 7am he work, wakes up and plays the guitar all day long and it's a six string or a 12 string guitar and that's it. And he's gotten world-class because of his commitment. I get so confused about this topic, because then you have Steve Martin, who has written plays, and articles for New Yorker, and stand-up, and magic, and uh, is in a bluegrass band, and wrote his own you know, banter, and a million other things I'm forgetting, a renaissance, a true renaissance man, and, and one thing doesn't get in the way of the other, so... Why is someone a Leo Kaki that can only, you know, that, that wants to do one thing and does it great? And someone else is Steve Martin who can do, a, you know, 50 different things. Well, anyway, <laughs> it's, this is tricky stuff.
0: The plight of being a human being. But uh, I think, yeah, some people just have more bandwidth than others and four different things. That is not, that is, not, that doesn't mean that one person is better than the other. It's just like certain people. Can, yeah. Um, Where do you draw that line? Like when they things. say the
1: 10,000 people you know when Malcolm Gladwell talked about the 10,000 hour rule where you can be great at something and and it, I think he admitted it wasn't the, the the concept didn't come from him he's just a great writer um, that takes sure. these pre-existing concepts um but where what does that mean 10,000 hours like does can it be 10,000 hours including vocal lessons and uh you know and I make movies so that can't be in there that's not you know as a filmmaker can it can the 10,000 hours include writing and learning about cinematography and editing for 3,000 hours, so my first movie, Outside Out. Or, you know, that's got spreading myself a little thin. With Or if someone that just commits to being a cinematographer their whole lives could be, you know, maybe the best cin- cinematographer. And so it's a really tricky question for me because I have so many interests. I definitely want to write a book and probably more than one. And I'm really wanting to do that. And my movie is very important to me. And it's a huge project, and I have so many different kind of albums that I want to make, different experiments for different processes, and um, and I don't have all the time in the world because I only have one lifetime. So it's a really tricky question. Um, I think with four thousand weeks and books like that, you can. The encouragement is to learn internally in your soul and in your your stomach yeah. and what the gut feeling is of how to spend the time because it's so tricky.
0: And I do get that. My only thing is, I mean, you could take a look at yourself, by the way. You're talking about Steve Martin. You have already made a movie, written a book, film scoring, been part of multiple bands. Like You've got a lot of skill sets that you have going on. I think the only hesitation I have, I mean, I understand the concept of the 10,000 Hours thing, but I do think the thing for cats like Steve Martin or even yourself or, you know, I do a lot of different things as well. I think beyond... What's more important of, in the number of hours is: Are you actually paying attention to and really right. working on the things? Is it deliberate practice? Are you right. really focusing on the things that need improvement and are going to make the most improvement? That's you true. work on those, and then boom, like good, what bo- is it that really point. makes good comedy? And then you can you can dial that at
1: what? Yeah, and then you could apply that. Yeah, yeah. if you're really present, and meditation is so good at training people to become present in that way, where if you're getting the most out of the... I mean, 10 seconds of your life can be an infinite amount of time if you're if you're in the moment. So I think you're right. It's figuring that out. I mean, I, I have this book within eight feet of me called Concepts for Bass Soloing. It was Mark Johnson and another upright bass player. And it's so difficult for me. I had a stack of stuff and I thought, I'm going to go through it. That's it. It's a lockdown. And like a uh, magazine articles where it said, learn this from this person or books like book of Ron Carter baselines. So, uh, uh, and this book came up in, in the stack and it's taken me two years. The, even, this, yeah. even the chapter on rhythm, like I was talking about 11 against 13. It's like b- play in five for one bar while juxtaposing three over it. And then in the next bar, switch to seven and then go back to five. I can't even think of doing that. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then there's people like um, Anto- Antonio Sanchez who played with, uh, yes. who played with Patentini, who has this the, the kick drum pedal with a with a heel that plays one thing, uh, the hi hat pedal. Where yes, the, where, he's where, got the clave thing the, going in one, the clave oh, in one, gosh. right? So, and similarly, I think about people like Victor Wooten who can have so much facility on the bass, and I am never going to be Victor Wooten because I don't feel that I'm going to commit to that level of knowing that kind of information on the bass. but i uh, in in, ter- in terms of knowing some more techniques some more scales and some more chords and some more you know uh etc um but i don't see that as a as a deficit uh, because it's just the tr- for me playing a few notes and really getting into the pocket is all i need and and some sure. of the best fish jams ever i've dis- i'm i'm playing one note for 20 minutes and it feels yeah. doesn't feel like a jam band it feels modern and innovative and you know mixing electronic sounds with what it just feels um fresh even though it's only one note so it doesn't mean that victor wooten has taken on too much it means that his mind and his soul were had the uh the desire like you were saying to get in the moment and I've seen people like him or O'Teal or doing a crazy, ferocious solo with with elements that I don't know understand, even with, within my knowledge of music theory, and completely let loose in the moment, completely not self-conscious, not over-technical feeling, not over-analyzing. And so I guess it just comes down to, like you were saying, different people have different sensibilities for what... Gets yeah. them present in the moment and what they enjoy. But for me, I like to have a lot of different things going. And if I'm thinking about being a songwriter and I'm thinking about being a bass player and I'm thinking about being a band leader and I'm writing a script and I want to write a book and all this other – doing a neurological experiment and a few other things I'm probably forgetting, putting sound effects to my uh, weird paintings, I enjoy that and – Maybe I'm not spreading myself too thin. I feel like I'm in the moment with those. So yeah, this is a this is what we have to figure out as humans. How do we spend our time? Because we only have four thousand weeks.
0: <laughs> I love that. Well, I appreciate you spending some of that time with us today, man. Yeah, it's been I appreciate really you too. great. It's nice to finally be able to hang a little bit here. at yeah, least uh, To talk about some of this stuff, and hopefully we'll get a chance to play some music together soon. I
1: would love to do that. Hopefully we'll cross paths in the
0: uh, non-virtual world as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good luck with all the stuff going on. Amazing work with the new album. I'm I'm super stoked about it. Excited for everybody else to hear it as well. Cool. Thank you. Okay. I'll talk to you later. There you have it. Mike Gordon. That was a fun one. Thanks for hanging out and listening to our conversation. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If this is your first time joining, I got lots of episodes out there, several seasons deep. If you're a bass player, If you're here because you'd like to play the bass, like to hear about bass players, I have conversations with Victor Wooten, Ron Carter, Sean Hurley, lots of bass players. I got lots of guitar players, drummers, producers, songwriters, singers all over the place. Go back, check out some of my previous episodes. I think you'll really dig it. Thanks for hanging with us. We got another couple episodes coming up quick that are going to be fun. We'll see you next time. Peace.